3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And recording for the last interview of 2014. We're here with Akil Patel from the UK. He's been working closely with Phil Anderson, who you've heard on the show a number of times from Economic Indicator Services. And Akil, give us the overview. What's happening in the UK economy? We've had uh, tough times there, but uh, you, you've got the financial sector booming ahead. Well, it's a bit of a mixed picture. As you know, um, and you probably know from Phil's work that I also research um, the 18-year property cycle. And the, the peak of the cycle in the UK was around 2007. And we suffered quite a severe financial crisis and, and quite a severe recession. The, 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 the rumblings from that lasted well into 2012. Uh, but I think now you're starting to see things picking up again with the uh, ultra low interest rates that we've had in place since about 2008. Uh, that's obviously ultimately quite good for property prices and, and property prices in London have really risen strongly. Um, on average, actually, we're now uh, property prices on average are higher than they were in 2007. That's not necessarily the case in the rest of the UK, but we are starting to see things pick up again elsewhere. Unemployment is now falling. It was around that's around six or seven percent. It's now falling, and we're actually starting to see signs of growing wages again. So, while while we have a lot of economic issues to sort out, we're starting to see the beginning of the next eighteen year cycle. And as a cycles analyst, when unemployment starts to f- fall, generally means the the end of the recession and things are back on is that sort of the leading indicator of the next cycle or is there something of uh, a deeper analysis that uh, phil anderson and yourself look into uh well actually employment is a lagging indicator it tends to be the thing that recovers last first thing that's that gives you a sign that the recovery is starting is is that the stock market starts to move up from its from the lows after the financial crash and then you start to see sort of house prices pick up again, just because those who can return to the property market do so, but there's no new supply of housing. So they're sort of, there's new demand against a sort of fixed supply and that starts to increase property prices. It then takes some time for the start of the cycle to work its way into the labor market. Uh, and it's usually the last, last thing to rise, uh, unfortunately, but that's, that's just the way it seems to work historically. So you really know it's all over when unemployment starts to fall. For, uh, for us bears out there, it, it probably means things have moved on and uh, on this 18-year cycle phenomenon. Can you give an overview for listeners, a bit of a refresher, because uh, not everyone understands what we're talking about when we mention the 18-year property cycle. Okay. Well, if you look historically, you tend to find that um, economies – have boom and bust periods every 18 years. Property prices tend to sort of move up for 14 of those 18 years and then you have a crash which is often associated with a financial crisis and a recovery phase which lasts about four years. The GFC in, in, in most of the world was the equivalent for, this, for the current times, a four-year period of financial crisis, falling property prices, stock markets going through the floor, Etc. But once that process is over, then you 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 tend to find a fourteen year period of expansion. Um, 
often interrupted in the middle by a minor recession, which um, Phil and I call the mid-cycle slowdown. But now that we are back into the expansion phase, I wouldn't expect there to be any major economic crisis for at least another decade. An entire decade? Mm, Well, that's interesting because here in Australia, we, for one, were predicting there would be a major downturn. But what we saw instead was the government throwing every single policy they could to prop up the bubble. And I thought it was interesting that Phil started to talk a couple of years ago. I mean, he's been right all the way along here in Australia saying, look, it's not going to be a huge correction. And he started talking about Australia switching off the the Anglosphere type um, economic cycle and over to the Asian economic cycle. So how are you seeing that playing out with some rather dramatic uh News stories coming through from China. I mean, they're always dramatised a bit, but uh, you know, I often talk about the 65 million empty homes there. But of recent, I've seen the the Chinese government are going to buy those surplus homes and turn them into affordable housing. Uh, it's a really good question. For me, it's still a hypothesis that Australia will sort of move into the Asian sphere of influence, if you if you uh, permit me to call it that. You'd have to you'd have to see sort of evidence because you know for the last hundred. 150 years, Australia has sort of followed either the UK or the US. But it's certainly possible that it would shift sort of uh, shift phases. I mean, Australia is a very interesting case study. It's a case study on when government has a lot of firepower, you can mitigate some of the worst effects of, of the cycle downturn. And during the GFC, you're also at the peak of the commodities boom. And that brought a lot of wealth into Australia and gave the government a lot of room for manoeuvre in terms of dealing with it. And, you know, you would argue that if the, the East Asia and China have their own 18-year cycle, which which might be sort of a, approaching uh, at this current time, uh, you would think that the Chinese government also has a, a certain amount of firepower as well. And so they might be able to mitigate the, the downturn as well. Uh, but also it's not necessarily quite a fair comparison because they don't have a banking system which is tied into the rest of the world and also, you know, it's in, in many cases still quite a controlled economy and the government can, can direct a lot of organisations and people to do things in a way that you couldn't do in, in the West. Isn't that the case? And uh, one of the interesting trends that's evolved this year has been some of the opening up of the Chinese banking system. Uh, have you got any insights on, on what's happening there with a whole pile of banking licences being uh, sold off? Well, I mean, over time they're going to follow the same model of development that we have in the West. And so you'll have enormous sort of mortgage sector, sort of normal property rights, buying and selling of freehold and and so on. And you would expect over time that to create an enormous real estate cycle. Uh, What's also interesting is that uh, a lot of uh, countries are encouraging the Chinese uh, banks to operate in their own country. I know the UK has, I think, set up a centre in Leeds, I believe, uh, to encourage Chinese finance into the UK. Now, that will be another dynamic in this cycle, which wasn't present in the last one. Whether it will be highly inflationary or not is, is, is remains to be seen. But it's certainly demonstrating that we're going to have a very integrated world with China in it. And China uh, uh, has never really participated in cycles previously. So it's going to be quite a quite an interesting time from a, from a cycle's point of view. Well, I'm interested in, in China because... You know, we used to laugh about Japan having a um, 
a, a one generation type mortgage. And here in Australia, mortgages have, have crept up from 15 to 20, 25 to 30. And now there's even examples of 40 and 50 year mortgages. But in just 30 years, China has gone from zero to three generation mortgages. But yet they still they have an incredibly high home ownership rate I've seen. So they're building all of these apartments for this sort of Ponzi-like game uh, for 15, 20% of the population who don't actually own homes. So they're going to work out a lot about uh, the modern economy and how the West seems to have exported all their manufacturing industries and replaced them with this uh, real estate game. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think in China, probably the mortgage part of the housing market is probably relatively small in in, in, in absolute terms compared to the West. Uh, I think we're, what, 60% uh, mortgagees in, in the West, and it's it's a much lower percentage. As far as I understand, sometimes the data is a bit sort of hard to understand uh, in China. But yeah, I mean, over time, they're following that model. I think the other the other factor that I, I like to look at is, is um, when you talk about the amount of building going on, is that the urbanization wave has still got some way to run. So it's still the case that the majority of the population is in rural areas and they expect by the end of the century or maybe before that, that uh, the majority will be in cities. So it will it will work out one way or another. I'm not yet seeing huge signs of problems uh, in a sort of a Western style collapse. But, you know, again, uh, it's sometimes a little hard to know what exactly is going on in China. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economists, our last interview of the year. We're with Akhil Patel from Economic Indicator Services. You can find some of the insights we're talking about on businesscycles.biz, B-I-Z, where the work of Philip Anderson and Akhil can be seen. So uh, back to the cycle and sort of understanding this, because you guys discuss it in a depth that I don't often see. And... We pointed out that falling unemployment is basically the end of the recession. That's the last indicator. And you've shown that uh, the share market really um, leads the way forward. Uh, I suppose these are the people who are digging down into the data as deep as possible so they can try and get ahead of the curve and buy in cheap. And that incredible motivation enforces uh, tighter and tighter information loops. Is is that why the share market is one of the lead indicators for you, even in an era of quantitative easing? Yeah, I mean, I think even more so. I mean, the reason is that uh, you know people are investing large sums of money, and they have to make sure that their information is correct. Um, it doesn't take every you know not everyone is in the know. It just takes a small percentage of the share market to be feeling that things are turning the corner for them to start buying, which. And, and and the reason that you know that the recovery is starting is that the news seems to get worse, but every time you get bad news, the lows in the stock market seem to be getting higher. It, it's, it's, I think it was true in, in the 19th century, and it's certainly true today, that um, the share market for that reason is about six months to 12 months ahead of business conditions. So the opposite is, is true. When you're about to enter a recession, the share market is starting to fall. The only point in the cycle where they seem incapable of really being a much ahead of the curve is actually at the the peak of the real estate cycle because at that point no one is really aware of the of the coming crisis and how 
how much uh, sort of potential problems there are. That that information tends not to be known, and therefore you see the 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 downtrend in the share market to be quite violent, as we saw in two thousand seven to two thousand nine. It's interesting that we can still trust information when you're supposedly considered employed, working one hour a week, when our inflation figures don't include the land component the main element that rises and where so many of us are spending 30 to 40% of our income on rent or a mortgage. Um, so, so those sort of data points are out. GDP doesn't include a lot of the environmental destruction. So uh, what sort of innovative measures are the insiders in the share market really looking at when you, you, know, you must look at uh, some of these figures and go, well, they really don't make much sense anymore? Well, very simply, the the, sh- the share market is is pricing uh, based on corporate earnings, and when corporate earnings are starting to rise, share prices go up. And in fact, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the news over the last three or four years about how much an impact quantitative easing has had on the actual share price. And in some cases, you you seem to have a suggestion that the Federal Reserve is buying shares to keep the share market up. That's not really how it works, as far as I'm concerned. Um, they've obviously made monetary policy very loose and been able to get away with it because we seem to have relatively low inflation. Now, I, I completely understand where you're coming from in terms of inflation data not including the land component. But nevertheless, in general terms, we live in an era, it seems, of fairly low inflation. And that means interest rates can stay low, which is supportive of land prices, which then enables the banking sector to recover. But in reality, the only reason that US markets in particular have gone up as far as they have, is because U.S. companies are making a lot of money, um, and you're seeing, you know, a lot of uh, technological innovation. And I think we're really just starting that process, and and potentially that this cycle could be could be really big. Corporate earnings are reflective of some kind of barometer of economic health. Companies make money when when people are buying their products or their 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 cutting costs. So it's not perfect as a measure. It doesn't, you know, there's no sort of land component in the way that we would like to see, but it is reflective to a certain extent of economic health. Good old corporate earnings. Okay. (laughs) So back to um, the UK and Europe, it must seem like a a dreary old world looking across the the ditch there at uh, what's happening in Europe. The EU England's always uh, stayed out of that and protected its pound. It's very interesting how this austerity experiment has been rolled out and I like to think that this sort of planned obsolescence of our tax system is uh, encouraging the privatisation of so many resources that goes to these rent seekers, these one percenters who have already made a killing out of real estate and now they want to cherry pick the, the last remaining public infrastructure. So... How do you see Europe evolving through this next business cycle as the demographics age, uh, you know, as as this mobility of capital continues and as uh, the taxation of economic rents, these unearned incomes, seems to be so far off the political radar in Europe itself? I mean, they've been off the radar in the UK for for generations and, and yet the UK has somehow managed to drag itself out of successive real estate downturns. So I, I think the same will happen in Europe. It's quite interesting that um, if you look at the experience of Ireland, Spain and Portugal and Italy in this current crisis, it's not actually dissimilar to what the UK experienced in the last crisis. At the time, there was this thing called the exchange rate mechanism, 
where the um, the various currencies of the European Community were anchored to the Deutschmark uh, within a sort of fairly fairly narrow trading band, um, and the UK needed to loosen monetary policy in the aftermath of the ninety one uh, crisis and couldn't because monetary policy in the Community was effectively set by the Bundesbank. Um, and the Germans are very um, supportive of tight monetary policy and very paranoid about uh, inflation. It's probably a hang-up from the 1920s after the First World War. And uh, the eventually the UK was forced to exit from the exchange rate mechanism and then was able to devalue the currency. The pound fell probably uh, 30% against the dollar. But it actually engineered the recovery in a faster way than probably would have been the case had... They stayed part of the ERM arrangements. You're seeing the same sort of thing now with Ireland and other countries, except they don't have the option of exiting the euro. So I would suspect that you will probably start to see greater divisions within Europe between the South, where the economies recover but don't really grow, and and um, sort of export-led countries such as Germany, which you know will benefit greatly from the weaker euro that we seem to be getting and uh, will benefit from the sort of booming Asian countries. Well, it must be sending Europe into a bit of a tailspin hearing that Germany itself, the economic powerhouse, may well be heading towards a recession. And uh, I find it interesting that this new era of um, currency devaluation is, uh, in essence, another form of protectionism. But when everyone's pushing down their currency, it doesn't really do uh, too many favours for anyone except for the one percenters who um, love a cheap currency to storm on in and and buy up your your resources, your natural resources. Um, Yeah, but it seems to be sequenced to a certain extent. The US had its uh, period of devaluation um, between 2008 and 2012. And now I think, if anything, the dollar is going to rise against the basket of currencies. So now it's the turn, it appears to be, of the um, of the euro and the yen and so on. I mean, there's a lot of games that go on. And to be, to be completely honest, I don't really understand them fully, but um, I would be very surprised if there wasn't some kind of coordination going on, at least between central bankers to to phase some of these things. It seems to be just too slightly too well-timed that the point at which the US can afford to let the currency appreciate, the euro has, the, the, the ECB has really pushed out a very devaluation-oriented policy. Interesting point, interesting point here on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and Akhil Patel from businesscycles.biz. He's here in Australia to give a few presentations to shareholders. And uh, what about this shareholder activism? Is uh, that something that you think is going to rise as someone who's involved in the share market? Uh, We've seen a a reasonable amount of that uh, here in Australia. How's that playing out as a global trend? Oh, you're certainly seeing it in the UK. Uh, I I mean, from a corporate governance point of view, I think there there are some many positive benefits to activist shareholders. Of course, it depends on what they're being activist about. You get stories at the peak of the cycle when they're encouraging businesses to sell off their real estate so they can realise the gains. This happened to McDonald's in 2006, which is probably not perfectly okay from a corporate governance point of view because you're basically selling the assets of the company. But in in you know with with um, the scrutiny paid towards bankers' bonuses and, and remuneration and making sure that to a certain extent uh, corporate executives have the right incentives to manage companies properly. I mean, it's 
got to be a positive trend. It's certainly an increasing trend in the UK as well. Imagine you're a, a youngster in the UK listening to this podcast and wondering where on earth there's going to be a place for you on this planet. Prices just keep going up and I've seen in London uh, some sort of figures of 18% increase in house prices there. There has been a reaction, there has been some sort of policy response, but unfortunately if they could have mangled it any better, the Conservatives, uh, uh, they would have been doing well because they've come out with all the worst terms trying to inflate a wealth envy. I'm not sure whether it was the Lib Dems or uh, Conservatives, but this term of the mansion tax and then they had the garden tax and now they've got some record high stamp duty they're trying to uh, impose on the property market. They just keep getting it wrong and it's almost another planned stuff up so that they say, well, you know, this is too hard. Let's just go back to um, increasing the sales tax, the VAT. Yeah, it's been a veritable wish list of policies that support uh, higher prices and, and those who already own their property. There are people in the Lib Dem party that are bona fide Georgists and understand the economic rent and how these, uh, probably how these cycles work. Uh, but they've had very limited traction in terms of getting any sort of uh, land value tax policy through. The closest they've come is the idea of a mansion tax, which is flawed for a number of reasons, not least, as you say, it it sort of creates the politics of envy, which never plays well, I don't think, uh, certainly not in, in the UK. The stamp duty is just an attempt to to raid more sales transactions and, 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 and revenue, so you don't have to, we're facing some uh, sort of fiscal holes that we have to plug, so this would be one of those attempts. Uh, the idea of the garden tax, well, that's, if you if you uh, if you were an opponent of a land value tax uh, and you and you wanted to caricature the land value tax, you would call it a tax on gardens because you know it's, it's a tax on land and probably probably the the larger area is the garden. So you can you can uh, make it seem negative from that point of view, and you're, you've probably seen that in the news in the UK. How, how big are the think tanks? These right wing think tanks. Here we have the Institute of Public Affairs and the Center for Independent Studies, as a host of others, um, through various property arms that really have the year of big media. What are some of the groups that you guys face in the UK that we should put on our uh, radar? Uh, there's the Institute of Economic Affairs, I believe. There's also the Smith Inst- Institute. Uh, I think I'm not. It's probably not the right name, but something to do with Adam Smith, or at least the name. I mean, there are, of course, some pretty big uh, left-wing think tank think tanks, Demos, and um, uh, and so on, which, uh, to be honest, have had an open goal in terms of proposing policies that, as Georgists, we would support, but have failed to really put the case forward. And and we're finding that left side of politics at a time when they, you know, there's a lot of discontent, and they could really grab the agenda have really failed to come up as far as I'm concerned with a coherent policy response to the problems. Um, so I, to be honest, I'd put both the left and the right on your radar for different reasons. And so how's that going to play out in next year's uh, national elections in the UK? It's really hard to tell. I don't think we'll have a coalition. Uh, there's been some suggestion that the Lib Dems will be the kingmaker again. Uh, I can't see it. They've lost a lot of support from their core base because of, they, because of their participation in the coalition, which result in a lot of austerity. I'm finding it hard to call between the Tories and the Labour Party, but I, I, I fear that um, the Labour Party has not really put forward a coherent policy agenda. And so probably by default, you'd get a Conservative Party, which 
maybe even more austerity focused than it is now. On the other hand, if things continue to recover, maybe maybe there'll be a reining back from that. So Akil Patel, just to finish this off, what do you think we'll be seeing on the economic front this time next year? I expect in the UK and the US that we will start to see rising interest rates. And actually, a lot of people might think that's um, the point at which everything starts to fall to pieces. Actually, I think that's the point at which the recovery starts to pick up pace. I'm curious. You've got to tell me why. So far, to engineer the recovery, banks have simply been borrowing from the Bank of England at a very low rate and then lending it back to government. This is how they recapitalize and build their balance sheets back up. When this stops, when interest rates rise, they'll be forced to lend to businesses. And that's when you'll get more growth and job creation. Well, let's hope so, because here in Australia, just 2.6% of credit has gone to business, the productive sector, and 97.4% into real estate. So let's hope that turns around. Yeah, I think Australia is in a different point in its sort of monetary cycle. And if anything, interest rates are going to go lower, the Australian dollar is going down and so on. So in, in, in our cyclical analysis, Australia tends to lag the US and UK by a couple of years anyway. So Maybe you'll see some of that a bit later on in the cycle. Well, Akil Patel, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Beloved Airwaves. Thank you. And there we have Akil Patel from businesscycles.biz, which Phil Anderson is involved in, the author of probably Australia's best book on this whole Georgia's topic, The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking, definitely worth a Christmas read if you're not reading Michael Hudson's The Bubble and Beyond. Okay, so uh, there's so much good stuff happening for us. This uh, really has been uh, a pretty darn good year for uh, us at Prosper Australia. We uh, are interested to see that um, ASIC has put their targets on interest-only loans, which you heard me critiquing with Philip Seuss and David Collier following their Senate housing inquiry presentation earlier this year. So that's great news. They are listening, these policymakers, and they're saying, look, there's really no productive purpose for being able to take out a loan where they have to pay a minuscule amount back in terms of the interest. Uh, Rent easily covers that, and uh, what they're playing for using those sort of loans is the short-term capital gain. So it's all about flipping. I'd love to see what percentage of interest-only loans are fulfilled within three years. I would reckon it would be over 60%. So uh, let's see if data fields, uh, data investigators look into that. That's what we want. So uh, also interested in the uh, Murray Financial System Inquiry report that was released on Sunday. Pressure placed on the banks, but interesting to see the the banking share prices went up. So maybe uh, the investment community was saying, look, uh, it would be a good thing if the banking community was a little safer in the amount of money they're lending to uh, the property sector. David Murray, the former Commonwealth Bank CEO, wrote in his report that negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions drive up prices and does nothing to help affordability of homes. So uh, the pressure's ramping, and as if that's not enough, APRA today came out with further 
concerns about the uh, level of investment to property. You heard me quote yet again, must have been the sixth or seventh time on this show. You can all recite it, can't you, that the amount of credit created since mid-2012, some 2.6% of it has gone to small business and 97.4% has pummeled into real estate. Well, that's a global trend and I hope uh, you are out there writing letters to the new Victorian Housing Minister Martin Foley, to the Treasury, to our new uh, Victorian Treasurer Tim Pallas who... um, Goodness me, was talking about maybe an east-west road in uh, five years' time. Uh, let's hope he gets back onto uh, the uh, Melbourne Metro Rail link and uh, finances that using value capture. So uh, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. This has been the Renegade Economist. I look forward to um, zapping out some um, slightly left-field uh, takes of this show over the next three or four weeks. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your support over this year. So get in touch, renegades at earthsharing.org.au. The show notes are up there each week. We have a Mixcloud page, uh, Facebook uh, for Earthsharing Australia. The uh, Twitter is at Earthsharing. And, uh, yeah, please uh, keep your investigative eyes and ears on the lookout for rent seekers and call them to account. Send a tweet, send an email. Uh, The critical mass is building. So thank you, beloved 3CR. I look forward to uh, speaking to you uh, live here on the airwaves early in the new year. But uh, the shows will continue. I'm just going to do a few pre-records and knock them out over the next week or so. So, uh Stay tuned for Raising Our Voices. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan